This is Abby, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned. We are back after a, <laughs> how long has it been, Chuck? Four month hiatus, five months. It's been a long time. I, I have to say, I have really missed you and chatting with you and I've really missed doing these. So yeah, it's, it's 2024, brand new year, brand new Abby, brand new Chuck, brand new podcast season. Let's go. Let's do this. Yeah, let's go. I actually can't believe that it's 2024 and we've been doing this since 2020, if you recall. I think we started doing Upzone together like right before the pandemic. I had no idea how dramatic the news would become at the time I signed up for this. So, Well, not only signed up for it, you actually pitched me. So we were, we were yes. talking internally about, we want to find a host for this. We think this is a really good podcast. How are we going to do it? There were some names floated around. I, I want to say your name was one of them floated around. And then you came to me and said, hey, I have this idea. How about I host this podcast? And immediately I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the greatest idea I've ever heard. And yeah, no looking back. We're in year four now. This has been wonderful. It has been wonderful. Yeah, what? it's been been fun. <laughs> we haven't talked about aliens in a while either. And I think that's really important that we restart those conversations. 2024, <laughs> the year of the aliens. Yep. Yeah. Listen yeah, to, I think- It's an election year, so we're going to need some distractions. Yeah, let's not talk about that. Let's just uh-huh. talk about aliens and urban planning. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> okay, so for anybody who hasn't been listening to this for four years, uh, this is Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Newsham. I'm a planner in Kansas City, joined by, of course, Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. We've got a great article today talking about millennials, which I'm here to represent. This was published in Business Insider by Eliza Relman, entitled Millennials Are Getting Priced Out of Cities. So the premise here, I think, is that millennials are officially old. We are having children. We are buying houses. Gen Z is now replacing us in the cities, and many millennials are starting to move to the exurbs rather than living in in urban neighborhoods that they've built their lives in and that really were kind of reshaped to accommodate them when when we were all younger. And now uh, this same generation is having to flee to the suburbs because of the cost of housing in urban areas, the types of housing that is available in urban areas. There's kind of a lifestyle description that the author goes into in this article talking about the concept of dinks, which uh, that that stands for double income, no kids. And really, this article is talking about how cities accommodate that lifestyle. So these are households that don't necessarily need a lot of extra bedrooms. They don't have kids. They don't, they're they're not needing to have daycare nearby or a lot of outside space um, or at least big yards. And so now millennials are growing up having children and are driving until they qualify essentially. So 
Chuck, this is, I think, an interesting article. I have a lot of thoughts about it because as a millennial, but I'm curious. I'm I'm curious how you see this. This is a trend that's very pronounced in, in the New York area, and I think larger cities. In Kansas City, mid-sized cities, I'm sure we see it as well. I know people in my age uh, that have moved out to exurban areas because housing is somewhat more affordable and the lifestyle is just kind of driving that. But I am very skeptical of the idea that urban neighborhoods can't accommodate family life. So you are a, a younger millennial. I'm a younger Gen Xer, right? So we're generation apart. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember, so we had our staff retreat last month. We fly everybody out to Orlando and have a a meeting. We all work remotely. So we get everybody together a couple times a year. And in December, we do that around Disney World, uh, which is a really great time to get everybody together there. I step back and I look because we have been hiring all these people. There's 20, there were 23 of us there. So Strung Down's quite a big team. I am on the older end of that spectrum, right? When we plot up everybody's uh, age, I'm on the older end. And we particularly hired some very uh, some younger people, some kind of entry-level uh, people in the last year or so. I was looking at this group and it occurred to me because I turned 50 this year that when I started my first job out of undergrad school, my first engineering job, my boss, who was the old guy, and I thought of him as the old guy in the office, the old wise sage who had been there, done that. He turned 50 the year I started there. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I am the old guy for all of these other people now. I say that because I remember during those days, and I remember in the kind of like the decade after when I went back to graduate school and got a planning degree and started my, my planning practice, there was this notion from the kind of snide upstart uh, know-it-all millennials who said, you know, you Xers, uh, we're going to live in the city. Uh, you can't tell us we're going to move out. The engineers that I was around would say, well, wait till you have kids and have to, you know, drive them around. Wait till you get to this age. You'll move out. You'll want the suburbs. You'll want the the highway expanded. You'll want all this stuff. And the millennials would say, no, that's that was your thing. We don't want that. I think the thing about this article that really struck me and she emphasized it like three different times, is that millennials are not moving to the suburbs. Millennials are not moving to like small towns. There's some of that going on, right? But she says they're decamping and they're going all the way out to the exurbs, like the farthest of far places. Because that is the only place, yeah, that is the only place they can afford (laughs) to live. And every generation has tension with the generation before them and kind of bewilderment with the generation after them. And there's a, a little bit of bewilderment I've always had with the with the millennials because I'm like, well, you embrace cities now, but at some point, you know, th- there will be some tension, and that is going to have to be worked out in one way or the other. I did not see this coming, right? Like I thought the boomers would die of old age and their exurbs, and they would just rot away. I didn't see a, like a new generation of people coming in saying, "All right, just a little bit further, and we'll qualify. Just a little bit further, and I can get that house." Um, I have a a sweet niece who just bought a house. Her and her fiance just bought a house in an exurb of Minneapolis-St. Paul. Uh, she's an attorney, works in downtown. She is remote, so she comes in like once or twice a week. And from that standpoint, can handle the commute. I don't think would do the commute every day. But 
it was not on my bingo card in you know 2009, uh, a millennial surge in the exurbs of cities around North America. I, I did not see that coming and am a little bit shocked by it and a little bit disappointed, Abby, I have to say. Yeah, it, it's definitely, <laughs> obviously, as people who are strong towns uh, advocates, it's it's disappointing because to me, because cities, places with existing infrastructure, existing neighborhoods and places have endless, seemingly endless opportunities to provide, I think, housing, but also amenities and services that can accommodate family lifestyles. The, the author goes into talking a little bit about housing types and this being one of the reasons, at least in New York, why families are needing to move to different areas because there aren't really like family-sized apartments, for example, available, or there's a very high demand for them. And so, you know, if you build a city with studios and one bedrooms and building housing types that are really set up to accommodate either young couples or singles, it, it really is going to drive people to go to different areas um, just to have a place to live that suits their needs. So that's something that I think is disappointing about the trend that's happening, that there's just exurban development going on, building these new subdivisions that, I mean, are really now meeting this market of of younger people, younger families that can't afford to live in in the more established suburbs where there might be larger houses and yards that they're looking for or the services and amenities that they're looking for. The article didn't talk at all about schools driving this. And in Kansas City, that's something that very much drives where families are living. I think maybe more so than the type of housing that's available or even the cost in urban areas. I, it has a lot to do with, with education, which I don't, I don't know. I know this is an article that very much is focused in New York City, but I was surprised that that wasn't brought up. Yeah. Education has historically been the thing that drove people to the suburbs and to the exurbs. When they reached that, that, that was always the snide engineer remark, right? Like you millennials are fighting this highway expansion now, or you millennials want your uh, your bikes and your walking areas now, but you're going to want your cars as soon as you have kids because you're all going to want to live next to the suburban school. I mean, being from Minnesota, I know that there is a, a, a bit of that, but I don't think it is as pronounced as it was even say 20, 30 years ago. I do think that there have been shifts and I'm I'm not an education expert I know we have done a lot of things around charter schools and magnet schools, and I know we've done some other school reform things in major metropolitan areas that have made um, those schools, in a sense, more desirable for people who have options. I don't think it's perfect yet, obviously, and there's a lot of, of catch up to do. Again, going back to the bingo card, I would have had you know 12 years ago, 14 years ago, it would have had decamping de- for schools would have been on there. And I don't think that that is as as much of a driver as just price is today. Your generation is so over-indebted compared to what my generation was, or were both compared to the boomers when they were in their 30s and early 40s. 
you know, when boomers were in their 30s and early 40s, their like dumb investments they made in their 20s were booming and giving huge returns for them. You know, their pensions, their retirement plans, all this, you know, their houses were appreciating in value faster than inflation. Uh, their salaries were going up faster than inflation. This was like a, a boom time. And I think when you project that out, it's kind of shocking when you look and see, okay, Gen Xers in their 30s had a lot of debt. Um, millennials have way, way, way more debt and everything is way more expensive and fewer prospects. And so, you know, even though I think the desire would have been not to move out to the exurbs, let's face it, the oldest millennials are in their mid 40s. If you get to their mid 40s and you're not thinking about retirement, like you're not putting away some money every month that you're planning on like a nest egg 20 years later, you're screwed. Like you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And the reality is, is a lot of those millennials have not had the decade plus of home value appreciation, you know, that has come with this transition. And I think a lot of it is like almost like panic buying, like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm almost midlife now. I have lots of debt. I don't have a house. I have not built any equity. I don't have much retirement savings. Yes, I would love to live in a walkable neighborhood with my friends and all this, but I got two kids now or three kids, or I've got, you know, a kid on the way and I have to make some quote unquote adult decisions. And I, I feel like the question you asked me at the beginning was, did it have to be this way? And you and I know that the answer to that is no, but it seems like this is the option that is left on the table when all the good options have been removed. Well, and I think what's kind of sad about this is that, yes, they're building out in the exurbs and building these subdivisions that people are living in. And even if that is the way to accommodate what people are needing in terms of price, but also, you know, location, lifestyle, whatever it is, a lot of these neighborhoods are just so despotic and terribly designed. It's it's really, it, it doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't. You can build walkable places, but that's just not what's going to happen in that environment. And, you know, if you think of really most American cities, many American cities and how they're set up, just thinking about the, the downtown area going out a little bit into, you know, midtown types, you know, urban environments. And then you get to the first ring suburbs and those are some of the most high demand places in every city in the country because it has a little bit of the best of both worlds. They're designed in a very, I mean, the architecture is, tends to be beautiful, but the entire uh, structure of blocks and street networks uh, lots even, it really is put together to provide a, a lot of the walkability and charm and amenities that you would experience in an urban neighborhood. And we are not building suburban neighborhoods in that way. I mean, we haven't been doing it for 100 years. We're really just building these despotic places. And, and that makes me really sad that people are just having to make these decisions for a variety of reasons to live in a place that is not really that desirable um, and charming. Well, and when we do build them, we build them in such low uh, quantities that they be, they become very desirable, very, very expensive, very quickly. And so at the price points we're talking about, you wind up with a, a whole bunch of like less desirable options. 
you know, we talk about our economy being consumptive. We have this consumption-based economy. And economists will, you know, parade that and say, this is a this is a great thing. This is how we're able to increase GDP growth and grow prosperity and grow family wealth and grow incomes and all this. And the reality is, is that a consumption-based economy, the, the economy that we've created, is really, really good at transactions. It's not really good at building that stable base of wealth that families need to feel secure, to live a high prosperous life, to live a high quality life. And what you end up with is over time, and this is this is part of what I wrote in the Housing Trap book that's going to come out in April. You know, when when you build this consumptive economy, suddenly over time, how you wake up and you look and you're like, housing is consumption now. I think boomers could argue that moving to Levittown was an investment. Buying a house in a first ring or second ring suburb was an investment. And not that I think it's a good investment because, you know, the Ponzi scheme trajectory of these places is not viable over time. But the government, in a sense, ensured that the price of those things would go up and they would go, you know, we would do what we needed to do to bail them out and keep them running and expand the highways and fix the infrastructure and do the housing rehab and build the next suburb you could move to and all this stuff. But once you get out to the third ring, the exurbs, like all this stuff, you step back and you recognize that it is all consumption and that your role as a millennial in this consumption economy is to buy the next iteration of house, create the next iteration of mortgage, allow that mortgage to be sold off on a secondary market, financialized, you know, securitized, uh, sold off to different things to keep the economy going. And that you know, the value you create in the marketplace is not that you're having a house and a family and building wealth and stability and committing to a community, but that you create a transaction in the financial system. And and that is a really low aspiration for most people. I have started to take pity on millennials because I used to think, you know, uh, that, well, no, that but that bewilderment that I had where like, we're different, we're this and we're that. You're actually trapped in a system that has given you few options. I appreciate the ability to live in a small town. One of the downsides financially of living in a small town is that, you know, the upside is that my house is cheaper. The downside is when it appreciates in value, you're appreciating off a lower amount. You know, I have friends, I bought a $200,000 house in a poor neighborhood in a small town. Uh, In COVID, it doubled in price. That's amazing. My house is worth like three hundred ninety thousand, according to Zillow, right? So I, I technically made like two hundred thousand off of appreciation. Um, my friends who live in you know cities or live in suburbs might have the half million or the three quarter million dollar house, and their place has doubled. So you know if you have the three quarter million dollar house, now you have a million and a half dollar house, and so when you choose to live in a small town, you in a sense give up some of the upside, right? Like my house is never going to appreciate three quarters of a million dollars. It's never going to be worth a million and a half unless someone else's house is worth 10 million. You know, that would be yeah. crazy. Well, it's a more stable market though. And so right. what are you really buying into? The the stability long-term and you're still getting appreciation. At the end of the day, it's like how much appreciation do you really need off the investment? Of course, right. having a lot of appreciation is great, but is it worth it? If you're trading for a, you know, San Francisco, New York City market that is more unstable in that regard. Right. 
but it, if you're a, if you're a millennial, and they did bring up this case study in the in the article, and you said, okay, fine, COVID, I'm done with the city. This is intolerable. We're going to move out to the suburb. We're going to buy. You're actually probably underwater now. You have been so kind of screwed over by the system where you were induced to buy at the market high a failing product in a bad location in a consumption economy so you could create a mortgage and take on more debt. And that investment, you know, quote unquote investment that you made is actually lower in value now than what you paid for it. And the transaction cost of get, getting out of it is something that you don't even want to think about, let alone go through and bear. I, that's what I say. I pity, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and with interest rates being the way that they've been, and I mean, it's getting a little bit better, but the article did go into the fact that there are people who are kind of stuck now where they are and they don't really have the opportunity to leave. And I, I actually think that is the case for not just millennials that bought in these markets, but also people in all kinds of different markets of all different demographics. I mean, are boomers moving from their houses in, in the suburbs? It, it's just with the interest rates, it just doesn't make sense for people to do. So it does feel like right. people feel a little bit stuck right now. When we look at housing from an investment standpoint, it's one of the things that I think um, in retrospect we can see, but like in the 60s and 70s when we're setting up the system uh, with a secondary market and how we're going to create all this liquidity and grow, 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 it's going to be amazing, uh, nobody stops to think about. When interest rates are 8%, and that's what my first mortgage was, 8%, somewhere around there, and then interest rates drop to 5%, you go out and and refinance your if you stay you refinance if you're not going to stay you might move somewhere else but you're getting a lower rate you're discharging your high high rate mortgage and you are assuming a lower rate mortgage and now the house that i'm in we're at like three and a half or something like that so like very very low rate if i were to move or to do something with my mortgage it would be much higher than what i'm paying now right okay? Okay, look at this now from the investor standpoint, right? The person who buys the mortgage-backed security or what have you. So in an 8% interest rate environment, you're sitting there going, I'm going to invest in a mortgage-backed security. I'm going to buy a, a, a bond of a bunch of different houses mashed together. I'm going to own a little bit of yours and a little bit of yours and a little bit of yours. And it's going to pay 8%. And that's awesome. Like I'm really happy with 8%. And then the market interest rates go down right? We're going to stimulate the economy. We're going to manipulate interest rates lower. We're going to make interest rates go down so we get higher house prices and, and more buying and all this. You own that 8%. All of a sudden now it disappears because everybody in that pool of mortgages says, screw this. I'm refinancing. I'm moving. I'm doing something else. And so all of a sudden when the market is paying 5%, you have this this thing that pays 8%, you're happy because like, look, I'm getting way more than the market. Oh, it's gone. And you have no say about that. Like you can't do anything about that. That's part of the rules. Look at it the other way now. You own a portfolio of mortgages at 3%. So you own a bunch of things that were like my house financed six, seven years ago, 3%, 3.5%. And you're sitting on that and all of a sudden interest rates start to go up. Now they're 5%, they're 6%. And you're like, oh my gosh, Go refinance because I want to get out of these 3% loans and I want to get into something 6%. Nobody does. 
and you're stuck with this basically crappy failing investment that you can't get out of without losing a bunch of money. So the mortgage market we've created does one thing and one thing really well. It allows us to create a lot of transactions today. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't allow us to uh, situate people for wealth accumulation, for growth, for prosperity. That is real. Millennials are the, the latest generation getting screwed by this, and they are the ones that are going to have it the worst. The next generation, who knows? I feel like there's got to be a shakeout, but I thought that before, right? But from an investment standpoint, it's also the worst kind of investment because when you want to hang on to it, you're not allowed to. And when you want to get rid of it, you can't sell it. And these are things that are 30-year debt instruments. I am astounded by just how dumb the kind of underlying logic of the mortgage market is. It, it really is a byproduct of a very weird period of time and the Great Depression and the end of World War II um, that we need to move away from today if we want housing to actually function the way we need it to function. Well, Chuck, you just wrote a book about housing. <laughs> so I kind of want to put you on the spot. Like, what would you propose? What, how do you think this could be done differently so that um, the housing market functions better, but also so that millennials don't have to move to places that they don't want to move to? Yeah. I don't know if I can solve the immediate millennial problem, but <laughs> you know, a lot, a lot of what we, we do talk about in the book, who is this now? This is, um, oh, this is Benson, my cat. <laughs> okay. Vincent? Benson. Benson. Okay. Benson. All right. Uh, hi, Benson. Yeah, he's a, Benson is a cutie. Yeah. For those of you yeah, he's not good. watching, but listening, uh, Benson is, is a very friendly cat. He's a very clingy cat. Oh, yeah. He's, he's cute. <laughs> so at, at the end of the day, what we need, and I, I will simplify literally chapters of a book to say like this, the market for housing needs to become more localized. It needs to actually respond not to the secondary market demands, not to national liquidity, not to Federal Reserve interest rates, not to Wall Street demands. It actually needs to focus and be responsive to the ability of people to pay for things at the local level. Um, and that means that our financing needs to relocalize uh, instead of having the 30-year mortgage and then increasing up to the 50-year mortgage, we actually need to go the other way and have the five-year mortgage with the balloon on the end like we had pre-Great Depression. Um, we can do things to ensure those and make those non-risky for local banks and non-risky for homeowners. But you know, every time, like the Biden administration has come out with a program for first-time homebuyers. When you look at the program, you can see the logic behind it. But if you step back and recognize that all you're doing is allowing people to pay more for the same house, it's this cycle of continually ramping up prices. That's because the mortgage market responds right now to the macro economy, not to local supply and demand. The more we can localize the market, the more responsive it will be to what people can actually afford, what people can actually pay. And when you combine that with changes to um, not just the types of homes we build, but the regulatory environment around it and the ecosystem of builders that deliver it, um, what we see is that we can provide a lot more housing at a lot lower price point when we are doing it and focusing on the block level. Yeah, the, I think that that is right on. And the article goes in a little bit 
in a little bit of detail about like regulatory proposals and changes to be able to deliver um, different types of housing and housing that can better accommodate the demographic shift, not just in suburbs, but I mean, really everywhere, which I think is important. Um, the types of builders that are actually building places is very important too. And we've talked about that quite a bit, you know, having citizen developers, making things more localized. Um, and perhaps that is a shift that can happen, but it just needs to be very intentional. And there's a lot that goes in to making a shift in really how we build cities, how we build America. Yes. And I think once we recognize how much power we have at the local level to change some of those things. I think this this entire narrative of millennials getting priced out. And I mean let let me let me say it in a different way. Instead of millennials are getting priced out, millennials are losing decades of their uh, earnings, wealth building, and, and kind of prosperity potential because of this whacked housing system we have. As soon as we recognize that and recognize that we have a lot of tools at the local level that we can deploy to actually buffer our markets and change this, I think the sooner we can, you know, not put the next generation in the same box. Yeah. Um, sounds like a good plan to me. I mean, I'm, sounds like a good plan. I, I'm a young millennial. So if we can solve this problem uh, in the next five, 10 years, I'll be in a better position than my, I have hope than my elder that. millennial friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, um, I've admitted to people that I did not enjoy turning 50. Um, and I did have this thing like, oh my gosh, I am, I'm the old person now in the office. Um, but 50 is also not old. And I mean, there's a lot of uh, runway left in the dialogue. So fixing this will be good for me. Fixing this will be good for you. It will be good for my kids. And uh, it will be good for you know all the generations the that come after us. Yeah. yeah. I do think that part of this key to doing this well is finding a way for boomers uh, to actually benefit from it too. And I think that the interesting part of that is that boomers, now we have a new pet. <laughs> it's the dog now. What's the dog's I name? I know. This is Callie. All right, Callie. She's also clingy. These okay, animals well, just she... follow me around. <laughs> That's good. They're beautiful. They yeah. deserve to be clingy. They can do that. Yeah. We've got, we've got a good dynamic here. Part of making this work at the local level is going to mean taking boomers who are very sensitive in, historically to, I don't want my neighborhood to change. I bought into this. Like I'm NIMBY. I don't want to start to benefit from some of this change. So you take the, um, you know, the single boomer who's now living alone, right? You know, maybe got to a retirement age and, and lost their spouse has more house or more bedroom than they have cash to be able to take some of that extra space and turn it into rental income. You know, I'm going to take one of my four bedrooms and turn it into an accessory apartment and be able to rent that out. Um, this is how we can bring boomers into this equation and have them benefit from these changes in a, quite a rapid way. But, you know, you know, Definitely. And even just the idea of having like multi-generational housing, I mean, or even I was talking to my sister not too long ago about just the idea that if me and all my siblings banded together, we could probably buy a really nice house and you know <laughs> turn it into like a fourplex or something. Uh. <laughs> so yeah, there's, um, but the, you know, regulations 
would totally get in the way of that. But I think if we were, were to allow housing to be more adaptable to creative ways in which we can live and afford housing, that would be pretty, pretty great. And it's yeah. a big hurdle to get there. I'm glad you have siblings like that because I grew up before we moved to the farm that I lived on at, we moved there when I was five, we lived on a road that today is known as Marone road um, <laughs> because it was my grandparents. And then they sold lots to each of my uncles and aunts. So I lived around 22 of my cousins. It was great as a kid growing up, wow. um, but all the adults, brothers and sisters fought like cat, fought like family. Right. Yeah. Um, and they were in separate houses on one road. We moved a mile and a half away to the farm, and part of that was getting away from the fights. Uh, I can't imagine having a house with all of them. <laughs> well, um, you know, that would have been I'm, an adventure. I'm, this is an idea. It's in the idea vision phase, and um, you know, who's to say that we wouldn't start fighting a lot? <laughs> oh, you are much more amiable than a maroon. You are. You are. You are a kinder person and a, a more fun person. Um, I would like to live next to you. That would be a that would be a delight. I think the Newshams tend to be pretty pretty laid back in my family yeah. Uh, yeah. with that regard. But yeah, if all of us as siblings, when we were younger, we definitely were at each other's throats. So it might be like that as adults. So it might be kind of idealistic. Um, okay, well, let's end it there. Before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been reading or watching, listening to, just stuff that's been taking up our time and attention. So Chuck, I'm going to put you on the spot here. What have you been up to? It's been a long time since we've done this. I have like a ton of stuff. You know what I'm going <laughs> to... Should I'm, we just do a separate I'm, podcast just for your down Yeah, zone? maybe. Just my down. <laughs> I, I, I'm reading a book right now about, it's called Rethinking the Dates of the New Testament. And okay. it's actually a really like super geeky book about when each of the books in the New Testament were written. And this might not seem like a big deal, but it actually is a big deal for theologians and others who study this because, you know, if something is written earlier rather than later, it is more in a sense authentic and less a result of, you know, decades or centuries of thought. Um, but I'm going to, I'll lay that out there because that's the one I'm reading right now and I'm finding it utterly fascinating. Um, when you and I got on, I was playing some music and I, I, I said, have you heard of the song Love is Strange? And you hadn't. And I, I want you to listen. To, I'm going to, I'll get it to you on Spotify. It's an older song. It's not a great song, but it is like one of those earworms it was in the movie Dirty Dancing. It's a little bit of a cheesy tune, but for some reason, I always kind of loved it. It's got a like a nice guitar riff, and a, um, the bass line's pretty cool for its age, and I like the percussiveness of it. It, it. I liked it. I came across a version of this done by Paul McCartney and Wings. They like did their own version of Love is Strange, and I'm a percussionist. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rhythm person. It has the funkiest just like smoothest rhythm. And then you overlay, you know, McCartney's vocals and kind of the, the, the guitar riff. I have had this song on repeat for like two hours. And I just, it's one of those things where like, I, I'm in this groove where I can't get enough of it. Like I just, I want to take it and like inject it straight into my brain and just let it like 
marinate in there. It's such like a good, you know, you get that one song every now and then that just catches you. I'm not going to claim to anyone listening that this is a great song or virtuoso or like it'll blow your mind. <laughs> You're going to get emails hit, now with all yeah, kinds of opinions. <laughs> it, it has hit me at just the right time where it's like, oh, can I listen to that song again? Yes, I can. Repeat. <laughs> How about you, Abby? Um, well, I have been spending a lot of time working on charcoal drawings uh, which we were talking about before we were recording. People who have video can see in the background your beautiful work. I I've been admiring it on Instagram uh, when you share them. Yeah, I've, I've been loving it. I've just been like, right now I've, I've started, so I started with charcoal on paper and then I started moving into charcoal on canvas, um, which is very different than paper, very different. So that was kind of a learning experience. And then I started to mix in different kinds of paints. And now um, my my coworker has, she has lent me an entire huge set of color pastels. So now I'm mixing in color pastels. So I'm having a lot of fun and it's been preoccupying like or occupying most of my time outside of work these days. Well, you are incredibly gifted. But hey, I did not Jack. know. Well, you are. And I've, 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 I've long thought that I did not recognize this amazing talent that you have until recently. And I, I got to say, I, I've just been blown away by it. I mean, you, you have, I, you're talking to someone who like struggles to draw stick drawings. Like I'm just <laughs> this left-handed, awkward, like I can't draw. I just am not good at it. Hey, I'm left-handed too. There's hope. Okay. There's no, there hope. is. Well, Leonardo da Vinci was left-handed or yeah. you. so I realized that like artistic people can be left-handed, but I've always struggled to hold a pencil. When I see people who can do like gifted art, it astounds me. It's beautiful. Yours is at like a different level. I mean, this is really in some ways, like, I feel like you have a calling on some of this. I mean, it's Thanks, really, Chuck. it's really profound. Yeah. It's very, very good. I mean, I just encourage you, please like keep going. It's great. I'll definitely keep doing it. It's it's something that I really love. I didn't know that I um, could draw either, really, but I've just been doing it, and I love it. It's a lot of fun. Um, I I don't just do these creepy portraits, by the way. <laughs> My <laughs> no, mom I've seen are a little creepy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, they are. Moms. They are. They're, they're moms. Um, it's definitely not the vibe I was expecting to have, but I don't have a place to put them. So they are up on display. I don't know. That looks um, like a place. It's kind of cool because you can see these faces from the street. So people yeah. kind of can walk by and see these like weird faces looking at them. I think it's fun. I don't know if yeah. other people do, but. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. Well, we can end it there. Thanks for joining me, Chuck. It, and um, by the way, we're going to be doing this every week for, uh, you know, the next couple of months, basically. Oh, yeah, baby. We're back. Yeah, we're back. We're we'll back. talk about aliens next time. I didn't have any content, <laughs> but I'll I'll catch up on what's been going on and we can talk about um, it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll share some conspiracy things with you. Yeah, please all, do. All the latest alien news. Yeah, I need, I need to know. I need to be updated. I've been a little out of the loop on, you know, everything. So, 
Okay. Well, good to see you, Chuck. Have a good weekend. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Let me show you what I'm about to do.